We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall, and welcome to The Meaningful Life. One of the most common complaints of couples in my office is that neither of them feels heard by the other. It's not just partners. What about your mother, your friends, or at work? Do you find it hard to speak up in meetings or feel overlooked by your boss and not taken seriously by your colleagues? So our topic today is how do you make yourself heard, really heard? Viv Groskop is a stand-up comedian, a journalist, a motivational speaker, and the author of How to Own the Room. Her new book is called Lift as You Climb, Women and the Art of Ambition. So welcome, Viv. Do you feel heard yourself? (laughs) Oh, I should hope so. I mean, I think sometimes you have to be careful what you mean when you're thinking I'm not being heard. You know, you're the therapist in this conversation, not me. So you would know better than I would that there is a tinge of narcissism in this. You know, it's it's almost like a little child stamping their foot. Listen to me, listen to me. So it's a question sometimes I think of being measured about this. But one of the reasons I wanted to write about this in the book, Lift As You Climb, Women and the Art of Ambition, was because I was hearing from so many women in lots of different scenarios, but in particular at work, about feeling unheard. And often it's not so much that you're unheard, it's that you get interrupted or you can't pull the focus onto you or you say something and you don't feel that people are listening. So what I've tried to do by opening this conversation is to get all of us to ask ourselves, what what do we mean when we don't feel heard? What is it that we want exactly to achieve? Because in general, I think all of us need to listen more. (laughs) Uh, So it's it's a tricky one, this one, because sometimes I think in order to be heard more, you do actually have to step back sometimes and let other people talk themselves out and then they will listen to you. It's interesting what you say about listening as well as being heard. I'm actually going to do a podcast in a few months actually on the subject of how to listen because the two fit hand in hand. But I think you have special skills as a stand-up comedian because that is actually is a conversation between you and the audience, but it is really important that you have, first of all, a voice and then that you're heard. Perhaps you can explain a little bit by what we mean by a voice for a comedian. Yeah, thank you so much, Andrew, for making that connection because I think it's so important that people understand where I'm coming from when I talk about these things, because obviously I'm not a therapy professional or any kind of hearing doctor. (laughs) I have no kind of academic or scientific basis. The only basis I have for understanding anything about this is what I've learnt at the coalface of stand-up. And I switched from doing journalism trapped behind a computer to throwing myself at the mercy of audiences in my mid-30s, 10 years ago. And I did it as a real baptism of fire. I knew that I had a lot of catching up time to do. I wanted to find out pretty quickly if this was something I really wanted to do seriously or if I was just dabbling. And so I, I really took it very seriously. I did 100 gigs in 100 consecutive nights in 2011. Um, and I wrote a wow. book about that. Then I went on to do six years of Edinburgh shows and I hosted tours for lots of really big people. And I really threw myself in at the deep end. So I learned fast how to make people listen to you and pay attention to you. But as you say, maybe more importantly, how to listen to them. And a lot of people who would be really scared of stand-up, and rightly so, if it's not what you want to do, then definitely don't put yourself through through that. It's a tough, tough thing to do. A lot of people would think that stand-up is a monologue, and it isn't really. It's a dialogue where the other person ideally doesn't speak. (laughs) Sometimes the other person might speak because they might heckle you. But you have to learn to read other people's 
faces, their eye contact. You have to learn to read silence. You have to learn to listen really hard to the way that what you're saying is coming across. And you almost have to have a sort of slight out of body experience of stepping outside of yourself and thinking, what's the rhythm of my voice? Is there enough musicality here? Am I telling this fast enough? Where does the pause need to go? How is the pacing? You learn how fast that audience is taking on board what you're saying, how how long it takes them to reach the punchline. And you really learn to tune in to other people and the connection that you have with them. And for me, a lot of it, and I think this is what's useful for this conversation about being heard in any situation, whether it's family, relationships, work, it's about quietening your ego and leaving space for the other person. And you really learn that the hard way in stand-up because you've got to impose your ego. You've got to show people, I'm okay with being here. I've got this. I'm in charge. I'm going to make you laugh. It's all going to be good. But you also need to leave space for them because if you make it all about yourself, that's going to be really off-putting. So how do you quieten your ego? Oh, you've got to batter it over the head. (laughs) You know, I learned to batter my, you do it by a process of attrition in stand-up really, that you do learn when things are difficult, when you have difficult gigs, when an audience doesn't like you and you have jokes that don't land. It's all part of the process. You kind of learn that it doesn't matter, that it's not about you. And you shouldn't take that really seriously and think, oh, I'm such a terrible person or I'm really rubbish or... Uh, I'm not funny. You know, you, you learn, oh, okay, how can I make that easier for people to understand? How can I make my point clearer for people? You learn to take the focus off of yourself and onto other people. You know, that is the biggest lesson in the quietening of the ego is what are other people experiencing when this happens? When you're really trapped in your ego, you're constantly thinking, what am I experiencing? What does everyone think of me? How important am I in the room? <laughs> and that's such a dangerous place to be in because it's it's very unattractive for a start and it makes other people just feel really uncomfortable for you and I think it's a pretty normal reaction for lots of us in lots of situations that we get into but it is such a liberating thing to try to rehearse and practice that kind of generosity of spirit where you step out of yourself and think what are other people experiencing here So do you ever do this with your husband and your children? (laughs) I can see how you could do it with a group of strangers, but it's really difficult with people you really care about to quieten your ego. But my suspicion is that that actually might be good. So tell us about whether you ever do it with your family. Oh, yeah, I think I do it all the time, Andrea. I don't know if that makes me a psychopath, but (laughs) for me, it's quite easy. I just think to myself, Viv, this is not about you. This is not about you. And every moment that you can think that in any difficult interaction, especially if it's conflict or argument or disagreement, just think this is not about you and take your time to put the focus onto the other person, really listen to what they're saying and let them get it out of their system and learning that sometimes people need to say what they've got to say. And really say it like to the end. I mean, this is, you know, this is what therapy is for. You know, a therapist would just sit in a room for an hour saying, tell me more about that feeling. Now tell me more about that feeling. What other feelings are related? You know, this, that's, you know, therapy is such a brilliant discipline because it is the ultimate discipline of listening and making another person feel heard. You know, the therapist, a good therapist will not bring their own ego into the therapy room. So it's bringing a tiny, tiny, unqualified little piece of that into your yeah family relationships or difficult conflicts or arguments or anything and just thinking just for a moment make this not about you and i actually use something very similar i say it's not all about me because some of it you know the argument is going to be a bit about say it's with your husband it is going to be a bit about you but actually it's possibly quite a lot about you know how he used to respond to his mother or his siblings or you know you've got a bit of the old work conflict that is coming into the room and i think that helps to actually be aware that some of this stuff is about you but quite a lot of it isn't so don't actually take everything quite so personally 
Do you think this feeling of not being heard is more a woman's problem than a man's problem? That's such a great question. I've looked into this in quite a lot of detail to try and give some journalistic weight to the opinions and ideas that I put across in the books, How to Own the Room and Lift As You Climb, because my advice and my opening up of this conversation is purely that of a layperson. And from what I've read and seen and interviews that I've done, there isn't a great deal of evidence. I think we're quite early in having this conversation and in there being academic research into this topic. There's quite a lot of academic research on how much people talk, although it's incredibly controversial because they always do all of these studies that prove that women talk more than men and then everybody gets very excited about that and it reinforces the stereotype. And then there's counter surveys that say, actually, no, there's nothing conclusive about talking or listening that splits us accurately by gender in a way that we can say is scientific or academic. But anecdotally, I feel having done events, you know, before the pandemic, I was doing dozens of face-to-face events with, you know, groups of hundreds of women. I've done lots online with similar numbers. I've done in mixed groups as well. And women very easily bring up this topic. Men do not easily bring up this topic. It may be that that's because they don't experience it as much. It may be because they don't interpret it in the same way. It may be because it does happen to them, but they feel embarrassed to talk about it. We don't know. There's a lot of research ongoing about this. Women talk about it very easily, though. And what they often talk about is feeling interrupted, feeling shut down, feeling forced into a position of low status. And the concept of being heard, and you know, this is where it relates to stand-up as well, is really interesting because traditionally, until about 70, 80 years ago, there weren't very many environments where a woman did take status and was automatically heard. It just wasn't part of most of Western culture. You know, the role of the important person in the room, whether it's from stand-up to the CEO, to the bank manager, to a doctor, you know, until 70, 80 years ago, that role was always traditionally taken by a man. So we mustn't forget how far we've come, you know, after thousands of years of women not taking those roles and not expecting to be heard, we've really come a long way pretty fast. But it's still very bumpy, I think, in lots of different climates and different industries for women to be able to take that status. So I think you mentioned two things that I think would be worth investigating, the invisible woman syndrome (laughs) and heat-eating. I've never heard of heat-eating, so let's take that one first. Yeah, those two things are really quite similar. They are terms that have been coined in places like Harvard Business Review, the kind of studies that they would publish, to do with meeting behaviour. And often the meeting behaviour is examined in quite formal contexts. So it could be in the financial sector or in law or like, these are generally where these academic studies take place, or sometimes they take place within academia itself. So they examine their own environments. And these are meeting behaviours where Usually there's a gender imbalance in terms of the numbers, which I'm sure most people would recognise in a lot lot of professions. It's going to be the opposite in publishing. There's probably going to be more women in the room than men. But it's where there's a gender imbalance, and this can also be transferred into any kind of social grouping where there's a minority. That person voices something, and it's not really heard by the room. So it could be an idea, an expression of disagreement, it could be an expression of enthusiasm. And somehow it sort of passes unnoticed. And five minutes later, someone with more status in that room, some kind of alpha player, repeats exactly the same sentiment. And everyone says, oh, Brian, what a great point. And everyone else (laughs) in the room is thinking, well, Sarah said that five minutes ago. We've all seen it. It doesn't just happen to women. I think it happens to people who are softly spoken, people who consider themselves introverts, even to people who might perhaps be the maverick in a group. Um, But we all know these dynamics within a work setting where the person who is the alpha or the person who's really good at conforming and fitting in and who represents the culture better, that person will be able to heap 
a great idea that someone else had voiced. People who know the British comedy show, The Fast Show, will know that there was a character in that um, that was played by Arabella Weir, who was known as the Invisible Woman, who would sit in meetings and at the beginning of the meeting saying something like, well, I think the most important thing we should be concentrating on is our company expanding to Asia. And everybody would completely ignore her, talk for an hour. And then at the end of the meeting, they'd say, the thing is, we need to expand into Asia. And so people recognise that, I think. And I actually find it really funny and sweet. And I think it's sort of almost, and we recognise it from families as well. Everybody has someone in their family who the parents listen to more than the other people in the family, right? So I think when we have these behaviours, they mirror a lot of behaviours in other parts of our lives. And it's sometimes, I think, to take the heat out of it, it helps to sort of laugh at it a bit and think, well, this is actually something that we all just do. Yeah, one of my favourite book titles of all time was a book called Your Boss is Not Your Mother, Love that. Um, which was about how the dynamics from home were taken into the dynamics of work. And, you know, effectively your bosses became either your mother or your father and your colleagues were siblings. And it works the opposite way around. You know, your partner is not your boss. Your children are not your boss. They're not your siblings either. I think it's quite useful to actually look at all of these things. So I'm really pleased that we're doing this today. So let's break down in a sort of concrete way what stops people from being heard. I've been thinking about this, looking at some of the ideas in your book. So I'm going to pull out some of the things that you've said, and I've got a couple of ideas as well. So what stops people from being heard? I would say the first thing is they don't know what they want to say and they don't know how to say it. So expand on that for me. that's key, isn't it? I would define that as being related to two things, clarity and confidence. In turn, to answer your question more generally about what stops people from being heard, there's a concept in acting, in drama, in all kinds of public performance is known as the interaction between the internals and the externals. So the internal would be, I don't feel confident. I don't know what to say. Maybe people in this room don't like me. Maybe I'm not going to be heard. It's the internal conversation. That's like maybe the therapy part of you. That's your internals, your internal narrative. Then the externals are things like standing up straight, pushing your voice forward, learning to use a plosive to say, let me make a point or please. So these are strong consonants. Yeah, using a strong consonant or a strong expression to break through a conversation instead of starting your attempt to break into a conversation with, uh, or, oh, excuse me, or, uh, (laughs) already if you start with that openness of a vowel or an apology, you're on the back foot and you're asking for permission to come in. Whereas if you say, let me interject, or the thing we're missing, or what I was thinking, you know, anything that is decisive intervention. And you can even write some of them down if it really is a big problem for you. Those are the externals, little tips and tricks, like, you know, even using a pen to get people's attention, as long as you don't fiddle with it, holding a pen very still in your hand, and then raising it, making eye contact with the chair, for example, It's very difficult for people to ignore because it's rude. So learning the signals of the externals can be really helpful. But working on the internals, which is the real question that you're asking when you say people just don't know what to say, or they, I find often, and this is especially, I've noticed this with women, is that they question whether what they say is going to be good enough. And they think that somebody else in the room must have a better contribution I mean, obviously, this is a generalisation. I was talking about this at a speech writing conference where often there seemed to be a hesitation for women to ask questions in the room, but the men often ask questions. And I just got up and said, men, please answer me this. When you have a question in your mind and you want to ask it, do you ever think, I better not put my hands up because this might be a stupid question? And they all looked Never. at me as if I was mad. Like, why would anyone yes. think that? And all the women were like, yes, I do that every time. Like, even women who were massively, massively successful. <laughs> and so that's fascinating. And so it's always worth thinking, my question is worth asking. 
I think what also happens that stops people from being clear is they're not only questioning whether their point is valid, but they're also at the same time trying to answer the points that they think the other person is going to make about it not being valid. So we've actually got a second layer on there. Is my question right? Is my question valid? Oh, and just in case it isn't, let me start trying to knock down the reasons why it should be heard. And you can begin to see immediately there's going to be no clarity. What is this person trying to say? And often it's partly they haven't thought it through, but more often I think it's this internal dialogue that's becoming external. We haven't even heard what the question is or the point is before the person who's giving it is beginning to knock it down. It's not, we must go to Asia. It's, I think we should go to Asia, but I can see there's going to be reservations about this. And let me actually tell you about why we should ignore those reservations. (laughs) And it sort of has rather lost its moment, hasn't it, already? And I haven't even finished speaking. Yeah, absolutely. I love how you expressed that. It's this hedging of your bets, of waiting to be shot down and incorporating self-defence in your assertion. And it's, as you say, disastrous. People are afraid of clarity. I'm not sure why, (laughs) but clarity is so valuable. You know, I've learned to do it myself, partly through stand-up and partly through you know, I've hosted a podcast, uh, the How to Own the Room podcast for three years, where I interview sometimes really incredible people like Hillary Clinton and Professor Mary Beers. And I don't wow. want to be the person who's saying, you know, Hillary, I was thinking about asking you about this thing where blah, 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 I don't, I want to ask her a question in five words and get the hell out of there because people want to hear from her. Why are people so reticent of actually giving their opinions. I mean, I think you answer this in your book. It's the messages we've actually had as children. There are very strong messages that we get given. I don't know if you had this one. Did your parents ever say to you, I want doesn't get? Oh, all the time. So you couldn't say, I want something because I want doesn't get. And then immediately, if you've got that message, I want doesn't get, you've got to sort of manipulate round to it. You can't just say, I would like an ice cream, and they can answer either yes or no. You have to sort of approach it in a a roundabout sort of kind of way. Oh, look, there's an ice cream stand over there sort of kind of thing, rather than actually being able to ask for what you want. And I think it's really useful to think about those messages you got as children to actually sit down and think about some. So let's just do this. I'll give you another one from my family, and then perhaps you can give me a couple from your family. The other one we had was family hold back. FHB, that's in my husband's family. (laughs) If you had, you know, people round for tea and there was a nice cake or something like that, the family had to hold back. So we didn't scoff all the cake before everybody else had had a chance. And that's another message that says other people are more important than you rather than, you know, everybody has an equal right to a piece of cake. So those were a couple of messages that I got as a child that stopped me from being straightforward and saying, could I have a piece of cake, please? What were the messages you got in your family? Yeah, there are lots of them. I had 1970s traditional childhood in southwest of England in Somerset. And I was partly raised as well by my grandparents, who were absolutely lovely, lovely people, but, you know, born in 1916 and 1921. So I I feel as if those attitudes, they are actually a hangover from almost the 19th century, where children would, you know, you've got to be seen and not heard. And I've heard from my parents, from grandparents and people in both of those generations that as children, they were literally told, I never want to hear you speak. And it's interesting, I think now looking back, because we think of like 1960s and the 70s as being permissive, as lots of ideas of psychotherapy coming through, but they really were not filtering down at that point. So I heard a lot, nobody's interested in what you have to say. Or no one, no one cares what you think. No one cares what you think. And uh, stop showing off. Stop showing off was probably the biggest one. And, mm, funny you became well, a stand-up, yeah, really, I isn't mean, it? I, and I did actually, I was quite self-aware as a child. And I did think, well, why? You know, that's who I am. And I just thought, well, you're just not in front of the right audience at the moment, so maybe tone it down a bit. 
But most of us don't have that kind of self-belief. If everybody's telling you, stop showing off, you sort of take that message on. And even though this is 50 years later, that message is still somewhere deep inside you. And I think that I mean, you've overcome it with a hundred nights of stand-up. That's real shock therapy, Ooh. really, isn't it? But most people have still got those messages that they're not really conscious of. So, I mean, I really do invite people to think back to their childhood and think of those messages. Somehow they seem to always be around the dinner table. That seems to be the place that you got them the most. You know, what were the sayings? Think about them, because once they're conscious, you can begin to fight mm. them. Now, you mentioned confidence, any suggestions about how to increase your confidence? Because I think you have to be confident to walk onto a stage in the dark and talk to strangers. Yeah, I'm very cautious about giving advice on confidence because I would ask, what do you want to be confident for? What is mm-hmm. the thing that you want to achieve that you're not currently achieving that you think confidence will fix? <laughs> because a lot of people who don't feel very confident... I think they often look at people who they think are confident and those people aren't necessarily more confident. They're maybe just a bit more ballsy or they just care less about what other people think. You know, some people have the most terrible fake confidence that you would never want to borrow. So I would encourage people more to think, and this is, again, it's a bit of a cliche and and it's open to interpretation what this word means, but authenticity you know, how can you be more yourself and feel comfortable in situations? And that doesn't mean pretending to be an extrovert when you're not, pretending to be the life and soul of the party, going on some kind of, sort of awful charisma course. <laughs> I really, I, I think we're at a point in, and I've you know, had so many great conversations with people about this and it lends itself brilliantly to the conversation around how to own the room and who we look to for inspiration. I'm thinking about the rise of women speakers like Greta Thunberg and Malala, for example. You know, they're two speakers with massive cut through, really, really young. Everybody wants to listen to their message and they are not confident people. They're not confident they're introverts. They're both really softly spoken. There's a sort of neurodivergence going on there as well. Uh, Neither of them native English speakers. And they don't use confidence to push their message or to interact with people. They use a quietness, calm, authenticity. And belief in their message, I think, as well. That's really important. Yeah, absolutely. And for me, that is what authenticity is, is believing in yourself and thinking, well, if other people don't want to get on board with it, that's okay. There's plenty of room for all of us. And just doing anything that you can in your life that enhances that feeling of, this is good enough. I don't need to pretend to be someone that I'm not. So another thing that I think stops people from being heard is trying their broken strategies, but louder or giving up. So if you don't get heard and you try speaking up and you just shout louder, that's or you find that you're worried and therefore you become more and more anxious. You try and put the apologies in first. You put in so many apologies so that we actually tend to use the old failed strategy, but we just try and do it bigger. So if we sulk before as a way of trying to get attention, we just sulk for longer. I think that that can often be a reason we don't get heard. We're just trying the same old strategies over and over again. Does that resonate with you? Well, yeah, this is the definition of insanity, isn't it? Where you keep doing the same thing that isn't working, expecting it to have a different result. I've done that many times in my life. I think that's part of the human experience is to keep on bashing your head against a brick wall until you suddenly think, oh, my head is bleeding and the brick wall is never going to break. (laughs) So I think, you know, you have to be a bit forgiving of yourself and have some compassion that, of course, we all throw good money after bad, right? That's the emotional equivalent of throwing good money after bad and you just have to forgive yourself and try something different but I think sometimes when we do those things it's because we're trying to not sit with uncomfortable feelings and I've had to do this I had to do this early on in stand-up if I'd have a very bad gig and I would be feeling it inside you know I'd feel a little bit kind of rotten and a bit dirty (laughs) 
you know, from like, oh God, this is so awful. Why am I doing this to myself? This isn't working. And I just have to just get very quiet and still and think, you know, sit with the feelings, just sit with the feeling of this is horrible, but they will eventually pass. They might come back again, but they will pass just like the weather. And you don't have to cut off the feeling and move into a behaviour. So we've looked at why people aren't heard. What if the people that we're speaking to don't want to hear us? You know, we're in the middle of a row. Are there things we can do then? Because it's very easy, well, not very easy, but it's much easier to be heard in a meeting when, in theory, people are open to hearing than actually you're facing the brick wall and they don't want to hear because either they won't accept your message or they've got a message of their own to give. What can we do in those sort of kind of situations? Yeah, the lesson from from stand-up is really that there are some situations that are unwinnable. So there could be, for example, somebody in an audience who just wants to disrupt everything for everybody. And if you're on stage, it might feel like you have to control that situation. And you can try and sometimes you can neutralise it but there are horrible ways of doing that, like, you know, and I, I wouldn't do this, but, you know, some stand-ups do that by humiliating that person, humiliating that person into silence. Other people might do it by just moving the focus to another part of the room geographically, because the audience's eye contact follows yours. So if, if you're kind of ignoring this person and speaking more to this part of the room, that can help. And that's something you can do in meetings as well, is just try and sort of move your body language and your focus to different parts of the room but it's a known fact that some situations are literally unwinnable so that's why they have bouncers in you know serious stand-up comedy because that person needs to be physically removed and sometimes I think in everyday life we have to think pick your battles you know can you actually win this battle what's really going on here should you have some sort of metaphorical bouncer who comes comes in and removes that person well you can't have that So you might just have to sit and listen to the barrage. And I've been in situations to sometimes uh, in relationships, sometimes to do with work, where somebody is really expressing a lot of anger and a strong opinion. And I fundamentally disagree with them and they know that. But I have to learn to sit on my ego, (laughs) to sit on my opinions and let them talk themselves out. And that is an incredibly effective strategy if you can force yourself to do it. I mean, obviously, be safe. You know, I'm not talking about a situation when somebody is really attacking you and you're not and you're physically unsafe and you need to get out of that situation. But a situation where it's, you know, an emotional, psychological conflict or a difference of opinion, let them say what they have to say, listen, and then say, what else do you have to say about that? Or, okay. I get it. Tell me more. Or rephrase something that they said and say, when you say that, this is what I hear. Am I understanding that right? Am I right? And let them absolutely get to the very end of what they have to say. And even then say, okay, is there more to that? You know, these are really therapist techniques. And I've learned to do that through sitting in a therapy room for pretty much 20 years. I've done loads of therapy. I love therapy. I love my therapist. And that is what therapy is. It's really saying to the other person, yes, and what else? And what's interesting is when they finally have got it all out, sometimes they will then begin to say, well, actually, when I say A, that was a bit over the top. Actually, really, I feel B. And they will begin to deconstruct it a little bit. They won't generally just spill it all. Once it's all spilled, they will actually look at the mess in the room and they might actually soften some of it. But actually, if you just go up against them at that moment, they will just solidify it and it gets harder and harder. I think that some of this is going to come up in the letter, so we'll perhaps expand on that as well. But what I'm aware of is that particularly for women, and actually amazingly enough, I see it a lot for men in their relationships at home, that being a nice guy and people-pleasing is actually a huge handicap. And that somehow you've got to find a balance between owning the room, 
and people pleasing. So how do you deal with those two things? Yeah, that's a great question. I've often tried to address this idea of being nice. And you're right to say that this affects men often as much as women. And I'm always trying to keep this conversation. I mean, I focus on women because we need to make a change there. But there's so many things in this conversation to do with confidence and being heard and feeling like you own the room that resonates with so many men as well. It's really about reducing that uh, stereotype of the alpha. You know, the alpha has always represented power and leadership and the person we all listen to. And I think we're seeing a massive sea change in the way that we relate to power and leadership and who we should listen to. And it's not just gendered, it's to do with all different kinds of groups in society finally being heard and us not having a default. But I think that being nice is a quality that we all slightly worry about. And I think perhaps this is a slightly British thing or there are different cultural ideas around niceness. There's definitely gendered ideas. You know, lots of little girls would have been told, you don't do that, it's not nice. Or it's not nice for a girl to do that. Um, But similarly, there are lots of men who want to be the good guy. You know, they want to do the right thing. And it's about finding this happy medium that I call happy high status. This is a concept from Keith Johnson, a brilliant improviser, who talks about on stage, and you notice this in particularly in comedy and drama, people are vying for status the whole time. And according to different behaviours and the way that you react to somebody, your status goes up and down. And if you take that off stage and into real life, you're trying to get to this feeling of happy high status. And I often give Michelle Obama as an example of someone who's really embodies this. And it's this feeling of very casual magnanimity. It's the sort of person who could take charge in a room if they needed to and people would follow them, but equally they're not imposing their status. And it's almost, I would say, like being a good sibling And, you know, my sister's listening to this. She'll just be cracking up because she's like, well, you don't know anything about this. But it's like, because I'm an older sibling. My sister's three years younger than me. And, you know, older siblings can have a real tendency. And I have three children, so I see this in them as well. Especially when you're a child, you want to lord it over smaller children and show like, I'm the boss here. I'm actually nine months older than you. We all know that feeling of like trying to assert status, but then we all know those moments. And I think even those who are only children would see this behavior in other people where actually you're having a really good relationship with your sibling and the age difference has fallen away and you're just equals and you're, you're having a, you know, loving moment and, and it's all just normal. And it's like more like your friends than part of that whole sibling hierarchy. So happy high status is about having enough confidence and presence that you feel comfortable in a situation, that you feel ready to give the best of yourself, but you're also able to let others in the situation do the same. So you've got four top tips. These are actually for meetings, but I think we can go away from those. So I'm going to take you through these four top tips because I I like people to take away something really concrete. So these are how to be heard in meetings, and I think they are transferable. The first one is be silent and watch. Tell me about that. Being silent and watching is really helpful for this balance of internals and externals. So you might use it if you feel you've got into a situation where a pattern is repeating itself. Say you always end up arguing with a certain person, or you always go into a meeting and you'll never listen to. You can say, right, blank slate. For the next three weeks, whenever I go to this weekly meeting, I'm going to be silent and watch. And you just start to observe the body language of the people around you. Start to watch and see what tricks they use to be heard. Almost depersonalize and pull yourself out of the situation so that you can watch it. And it can be very, very helpful. Again, it's taking the emotion out of the situation. It allows you to make better informed decisions when you then do decide to step in. And then would come the point of your second one, which is steal from the best. Yeah, steal from the best is about trying to find moments of inspiration, people who you think, oh, yeah, I love how that person, what energy they bring into that meeting, or I love that person who never says anything. And then at the end, they say one thing that is 
really incisive. You know, it's so important to almost make a physical note of these things, of people who impress you, people who resonate with you, people who you think, oh, I wish I could have some of what they've got and really try and analyze it and note it down. It doesn't mean you have to copy other people. I'm not suggesting that you clone yourself, but it helps you to know yourself better because you start to think, well, these are the things that impress me. How can I bring those out in myself more often? And you also say take risks. Taking risks is so important in life, isn't it? And I think sometimes the older we get, we become a little bit more risk averse. And a lot of working lives don't encourage us to take risks. But I think anybody who is attracted to the message that I've been spreading around how to own the room, no matter what industry they work in, is aware that when you want to communicate really well with people, when you want to connect, when you want to own the room, when you want to have other people listening to you, when you want to propose something really exciting, you have to take a risk. Otherwise, it's not going to be interesting enough. Something needs to be at stake for people to really get on board. And that is scary because it means they could reject it or they could reject you. But if you're not taking a risk, your thing very probably isn't important enough. And possibly the biggest risk of all is to challenge in a situation when you're not being heard or you feel that somebody else is not being heard. So tell me about that. There is a situation that I've talked about a lot that people seem to find important. (laughs) And that's what I call advocating. So it's where in a meeting you would pull in, you could do this in advance, you need to do this in advance. You could do this, I guess, in a family situation as well, if there's enough participants. You pull someone in in advance and you say, I never get heard in this meeting. I have got this really important point I've got to get across, or I just want to prove to myself that I'm not totally invisible. Will you help? And that person agrees to say, when you try to make a point or you make eye contact with them to say you're ready to speak, that person would say, I think Viv has an important point to make here. Or... Viv made that point earlier. Let's hear more from her. And that is something I've heard lots of people talk about as something that is very useful because it doesn't put it all on you. It allows everyone to acknowledge that in a meeting, these moments that you're feeling of, oh, why aren't they listening? And why is that person taking credit for everything? You're not the only person who's noticed that. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. So one of the advantages of becoming a supporter is you can join in the conversation here and write a letter to us. And this is what somebody has done. My wife and I have massive rows several times a week. They always start from something incredibly petty and in her mind are due to my deliberate provocation. In my view, I have simply stated a justified difference of view or quietly asserted my competence or made a very normal human error. The rows consist of her screaming at me. On the occasion I get a word in, she does not listen and shouts over me from two to three words into any sentence. And now I just feel a cold, hard lump inside me, and I find myself A, unable to get this out of my head, and B, rehearsing internally how I am going to tell her I'm leaving if, in a couple of months, things have not improved. My problem is this. How do I make one last desperate attempt to talk about this with somebody who perceives themselves as so wronged that they simply will not accept the six of one and half a dozen of the other view of the relationship? I need her to at least acknowledge that I have a right to feelings about and a response to her behaviours. So I think we're right about this not being a gendered problem. What are your thoughts on this one, Viv? Yeah, this is a tricky one because there's a way of looking at this that would indicate that this person is being bullied. And I'm wondering if their letter is trying to ask am I being bullied? And if so, what can I do to fight back? Is it that serious? 
I'm really cautious in responding to this kind of thing because I had a podcast for about four years called Dear Viv, where I would respond to questions like this. And I'm always so fascinated by how people frame a very complicated situation. And for me, there's so much here that's unspoken. You know, we don't know what these rows are about. We don't have the other person's side of the story. For me, the most important sentence is when he says, I need her to, at the very least, acknowledge that I have a right to feelings about and a response to her behaviours. So for me, this is a real cry for help of my side of the story is just not being heard at all. And that's the real question he's asking is, where do I put my side of the story? And then the other question behind that is, why do you stay with someone who never listens to your side of the story? And my one is to acknowledge and big up everything you've said and also be curious about her because I think you've gone right into the core of it, which is that he feels that his opinions are not valid and not heard. And nearly always your partner is feeling exactly the same. I think the reason she's screaming is because she's not feeling heard. And we're back into that problem of being trapped in a circle where if you don't hear me, I will speak louder and louder and louder. So I don't think either of them feel heard. That's the big problem. They're having different ways of dealing with it. He shuts up and she speaks up. Neither of it's working for either of them. I mean, I want to give advice to both of them, but we've only actually got our gentleman here. And I think he's actually got to hear her out, as you said. You know, what would actually happen if you just let her shout and shout and shout and shout and at the end of it say, tell me more and what are we going to do about this? And can I tell you about how I'm feeling at the moment. Because actually, if you show people what you want, they might give it back to you. Yeah, I think that's a possible interpretation that is very useful, and it should certainly be attempted. I worry that if it's a bullying situation, you know, and, and there's there are some indications in this letter that, you know, he says one last desperate attempt. Now, I feel as if that conversation is going to go towards him saying to her, do you want this relationship to continue? Because that's what's underlying all of this is if her behavior continues like this, how can they possibly have a relationship? But yes, you're right. You have to make that attempt to listen to the person, even if they are screaming at you. It's worth a try. I mean, I think that what how I see it is we've got two equally valid views of the relationship. She feels that what he's doing is a deliberate provocation, and you're going to be pretty angry under those circumstances. He feels that her response is over the top and unjustified, which is <laughs> probably right as well. You know, both of their views are equally valid. And we've got a situation where we've actually changed it from normally when somebody does something we don't like and we have a positive view of them, we put it down to temporary things like they're tired or they've just had a row with their boss or they had a difficult childhood and they're doing their best to get over it. It's a sort of, it's a temporary thing that is actually underneath all of this. But when it actually gets chronic, we actually put it down to character and then it becomes permanent. You know, he's hopeless and mm. she's angry. And, you know, they're never going to change. She's always going to be angry. He's always going to be hopeless. And people get stuck because they've left it so long. It's gone from all the goodwill has disappeared. It's all about behaviour. No longer. It's now about character and it now feels stuck. Now, this might have happened. This letter might have come to us three years too late. But... I think hopefully having some kind of understanding of it. And we've got two equally valid kind of views. We've got Viv's idea, this might be bullying. And actually, you can listen to your bully forever. <laughs> and they're not going to change. Or it could be my idea, which is that we've got a communication problem that is actually solidified to such an extent that each person has this incredibly negative view of the other person. And they're not listening to each other. And the only way to break somebody not listening to you is to listen to them. 
and be the change that you want. Now, it could be that you'll get nowhere, but you will have actually had that one last desperate attempt to talk, but it might be a last desperate attempt to listen before you talk. Yeah, I love that. Also, you get to take the moral high ground in your own mind, right? Because you're the bigger person. I think to fix a lot of situations, being the bigger person is a great first step, even if it's so painful and annoying. (laughs) I was going to say as well, like, you know, let's give a shout out here for mediation and marriage (laughs) guidance counselling. You know, maybe that would be an option or maybe that's a conversation that would take you somewhere. If you said, you know, have you noticed we're having all of these rows? I love you, but we're having all these rows. Do you think we should go for therapy? All these things are worth trying rather than just repeating the old pattern, which is speaking louder, disappearing more, which is what they're doing. My suspicion is he's just disappearing into himself and she's speaking louder and louder to get his attention. And the more he becomes silent, the louder she becomes. And the louder she becomes, the more silent he becomes. So we're in a negative cycle. How can you break that negative cycle? So thank you for being my guest today. We haven't really talked about your current book, so let's talk about that before I ask you the big question as far as this podcast is concerned. Why is there a need for a book which is about lifting as you climb? This book really grew out of the previous book, How to Own the Room, which is also a podcast. And that's a conversation about women and confidence and being yourself in front of other people and feeling comfortable in the spotlight. And as soon as I opened that conversation and started having, you know, talks with readers and getting feedback, I realized that so many women were talking about feeling blocked, often by other people, but sometimes by their own internal barriers, feeling blocked at work. Uh, I remember the first event I ever did for How to Own the Room three years ago, It was supposed to be an event about public speaking and I talked a lot about Michelle Obama and about Oprah Winfrey and other amazing women public speakers trying to take lessons from them. The first question that I was ever asked at any event in relation to this book, which is supposed to be about confidence and public speaking, was everyone I work with is a bitch. Can you give me advice as to how to deal with that? And I was like, oh, wow, you don't have anywhere else to ask this question, do you? And, you know, around the room, lots of people nodding. And I got asked variations on this question everywhere. And I realized, oh, so many women feel unsupported. They're especially shocked if they feel unsupported by other women, which is where the bitch thing comes in. But they might feel unsupported by male colleagues, by all kinds of people. And it was this feeling of being alone and that everyone is against me. And out of that, I started developing these ideas around lift as you climb, women in the arts of ambition. So it is okay, I think, to be ambitious. Um, we can be ambitious for all kinds of things. It doesn't have to be for a Ferrari. It could be for, a, you know, a three-day week or for, you know, saving the planet. We don't, you know, ambition doesn't have to mean Gordon Gecko and having the corner office, you know. And I say this as somebody who's been a freelance creative for over 20 years and I'm I'm really ambitious but I hope I'm ambitious for for good things. Yeah, so be ambitious and take other people with you. You know, what does that really look like? So the book digs down into what does it look like to ask for a mentor? How do you get that? How do you support other people around you without being a doormat? How do you identify the moments when you need a bit of help? but you don't want to appear too vulnerable asking for it. All of those kind of messy, difficult things that we don't bring out into the open very much. I'm trying to find a way to suggest some ideas, to open some kind of sticky, awkward moments and really make public that conversation that is often private in the workplace. And there is a whole chapter on how to be heard in meetings that uh, we've been exploring in this podcast. So you have to be heard, I think, to have a meaningful life, which is why I've invited you on this programme. And I have to have you as a witness ask the question, what makes your life meaningful? Yes, I love this question that you ask. It's the most important question, isn't it? Because 
I think probably one of the reasons I started going to therapy in my mid-20s was because I had lost the meaning from my life, or perhaps I'd taken it for granted or never really thought about it. I was pushed into therapy really now, I think, looking back, and I think I pretty much knew it at the time, by the death of my grandfather. I was very close to my grandfather Mm. and my grandmother. They were hugely instrumental in my upbringing. And over a long period of time of exploring my feelings in therapy and and being able to be very creative and open in my work, you know, I've been very lucky that I've been able to plow my own furrow really and explore a lot of ideas that I'm interested in in my work. I've realized that what makes my life meaningful is honoring the legacy of my grandparents. And they were very generous, open, real people with whom I did not agree about everything. We had, you know, we had incredibly different views about politics, saw the world through very different eyes because we're from different generations. But their way of moving through the world and of being kind to people, of always having a sense of humor about everything and never taking yourself too seriously, of trying to understand what really matters in life, which I think is the little things. It's the little things that really matter, like your everyday interactions with people, how you make other people feel. Um, They always really honored that. So for me, if I feel like things are going a bit off track and I'm losing a bit of a sense of self or purpose or meaning, I'll always think, what would they want me to do? And that really helps. And it does help bring meaning into my life. And when you said that, I had a sort of a shiver because it felt so true when you you said it. And I was also thinking of actually probably moving down through the generations so that probably in a sense they were honouring their parents and probably there's the chance to pass that down through to your children and to your grandchildren and it's a sort of like a moving sense of meaning that actually honouring your ancestors and becoming a good ancestor is something very meaningful. Yes, I hope so. (laughs) I hope so. One of the um, most moving moments I've ever had doing my interviews on on the podcast, How to Own the Room, was where, I can't even remember what the question was, but I asked Mira Sayal, oh yes, I know, I asked Mira Sayal what it's like to walk into Buckingham Palace and receive an MBE or OBE or whatever she received I wanted to what's it like like owning the room in front of the Queen how does that feel and um she (laughs) she just immediately burst into tears and said I felt all my ancestors were walking with me and (laughs) that just blew my mind because I thought wow that's incredible that you carry that sense of worth and meaning and the import of like the bigness of this moment and the smallness of you, that you carry that and that you felt that, that's extraordinary. And I do think it's a wonderful thing if we can all feel how, whatever negative feelings we have towards our family. And, you know, sometimes, you know, if you watch things like, who do you think you are? People even have very negative feelings towards people generations ago of, you know, some problem that they introduced into the family that was never resolved. Or there are all kinds of weirdnesses and unspoken things and unresolved things in my family, you know, not least the fact that my surname is Grosskop and I was never told that I was Jewish <laughs> until like some 30 years later when the internet was invented. So it's not pretending that everything wow. in your family is perfect and it's all great. I think that is what really brings meaning is these may not be perfect people, but they're my people and I will find a way to honour them. <laughs> Even though they're keeping all these yeah. secrets yeah. from you. That's a whole other programme, Andrew. That's a big one, that one. Wow. Well, unfortunately, this is where our conversation has to end, unless you're a member of our supporters circle, because on the supporters circle, the interesting conversation continues. I'm going to share with Viv what I've learned from talking to her, and she's going to share with me three things that she knows deep down to be true. If you want to find out how to hear that conversation, here comes the details. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. 
Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.